listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. All right, good morning. Let's go. First Peter chapter 3 is where we find ourselves today. And if you don't have a Bible, as always, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. Most of those uh, you can find First Peter on page 1015, some of them. It's on page 799. So again, I've taken you as far as I can lead you on that venture. You're just going to have to determine which Bible you may be using is which page number. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, as always, you're welcome to keep that, that Bible and, and uh, read it and keep it as our gift to you. All right, um, we have been, as we've been working through First Peter, encouraging folks to memorize portions of the book. So does anybody, Springer's got a microphone. We've got time for two folks, real quickly. Does anybody have any verse, no more than five verses? I know some of you are eager and have like whole chapters memorized. Does anybody, 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 anybody? We got a little guy right here, right next to Mark. Come on, buddy. All right. It's a, I think it says, it is written as if you are holy, for I am holy in your conduct. Yeah. yeah. That's all. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Amen. Way to go, buddy. We can be holy because God is holy. Praise God. That's in First Peter. Right there, Matt Prelosny. Come on, brother. All right, last one today. Give it to us. Uh, 3, 17 through 18. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Amen. Praise God. Yeah. I like, I like the, um, the, from, from a, a young boy, about this tall, to a really tall man, uh, praise God, we just, both ends of the spectrum there, way to go buddy, man, that is awesome, praise God. Alright, well let's go, First Peter chapter 3, alright friends, this is why we preach through books of the Bible, because um, this is one of those texts that seems like it has like a little wick coming out of it, attached to a stick of dynamite, it tends to be controversial. And, um, and when we preach through books of the Bible, were I or one of the other pastors to skip this portion, you would stand up and rightly cry, fraud. But that's not what we do here. We just preach through books of the Bible, so we, we encounter verses like this. So let me read, and let me pray, and then we're going to work our way through it. This is what... The Word of God says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come uh, to, you, to you in your word this morning, confessing that we are uh, distracted people. We're dist- 
distracted by life, by our past, by our present, by our anxiety over the future. We may be distracted by our marriages, maybe by our divorces in the past, maybe even by our singleness now. And so we come confessing these things, realizing that we are completely dependent on your grace and your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe your truth and how it applies to us, how it is good for us, and how ultimately it points to the beautiful work of your son Jesus on the cross. Lord, I pray that you'd help us now. For Christians in this room, I pray that you'd stir our affection for the gospel, even as we look at marriage. And for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, Father, would you help them? Would you help them see Christ crucified and risen and reigning victorious over all of life and that he alone is our hope? And would you save them this morning as you give them faith to trust in Jesus? And would you encourage us as we look at this text? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a couple challenges before we work back through the text. Anytime we talk about marriage, I think we need to come as a people humbly and, and considering one another because anytime we talk about marriage, there's, there's a few different things going on. It can be painful for many people. There's people in this room who are in difficult marriages. And there's maybe a lot of stress in their life about this very topic. In fact, I venture to say all of us at one time or another will go through difficult patches in our marriage. And so, or you may be in one right now. And so I, I, we should have a tremendous amount of grace. Even as I speak today, I, I want you to know that I have you in mind. There are people in this room who may have been divorced in the past. And so when just they talk about it and think about it, or hear a message or scripture about marriage, it just brings up pain. There's just immediate pain from the memory of a marriage that has dissolved. I want you to know that I'm, and we collectively as a people love you, and we want to care for you even in this text. And then there are finally people that are not married, but that want to be married. And a sermon or a text on marriage is a painful thing for them to sit through. And again, I want you to know that, that I'm thinking of you as well and that this text is not just for married people. This is for the body of Christ to help us learn ultimately what marriage is for. And then another obstacle is this is just one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. Like I said, it's got a little wick attached to it. Anytime you use that word submit or subject to or submission in our culture, um, it just, I mean, even as I read it, some of you were like, oh my, I can't, I'm, mm. you don't know. Uh, okay, just, can I just ask you to do something? Exhale, for just like, exhale. And just let's, let's work through the text. And let's not have this sort of resistance, like nobody knows much. Oh, you should have seen him. Oh, oh, just exhale, sister. <laughs> I understand. Let's, let's just humble ourselves collectively. And then I think maybe even most importantly is, is that whether main, marriage is a painful thing for us or marriage is a wonderful thing for us, we are sort of like frogs in a pot of boiling water in our culture where we don't even understand our, our surroundings so often. We are subconscious. We are often ignorant of what an idol our culture makes of marriage. Friends, marriage, happiness in, on this earth, fulfillment relationally, emotionally, sexually, reproductively, whatever might come along with being connected to another human being in marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is meant to be an earthly shadow 
of an eternal reality, which is our relationship with our God. And so, let's just confess that we idolize marriage and turn it into something that turns in on itself rather than being what it was intended to be, pointing to God and His glory. And we are awash with advertisements and movies. We are more informed by lines out of movies about a sports agent 15 years ago where he charges into the living room at the end of the show and tells this lady that you complete me, which is a lie, than we are about being informed by God's truth. So let's just confess that. And let's work our way back through this text. All right, nothing on the screen today. Let's just let the word of God stamp in our hearts and speak to us this morning. So verse one, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Subjects, another way we could say that is, is submit to your own husbands. Notice there that Peter says that women, wives, are to be subject not to every man, not to submit to every man. And we're gonna unpack what submission looks like biblically, but to their own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So let's remember the context here. Peter's writing primarily to a Gentile audience. Certainly there were some ethnic Jews involved in hearing this letter as he wrote to them in these churches scattered throughout modern day Turkey. But most of them were very likely Gentiles who have converted, who have heard the gospel and have become Christians. And so the setting is, is that there are many wives who've been in a marriage and they have now become Christians, but their husband is not a Christian yet. And Peter is writing to encourage. This is a continuation of Peter's encouragement from the second half of chapter 1 into chapter 2 about what it means to live out the gospel as a Christian. So in, in chapter 1, he establishes the gospel so clearly, saying that God has made us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God makes for himself a people through Jesus' work on the cross. And then he begins this exposition, which is the, basically the rest of 1 Peter, which is an explanation of what that gospel living looks like in our lives. So we looked at, in, in chapter 2, how it was submission to governmental authority. And, and now this is a follow-on, how wives now, what the gospel should look like in a home where the wife has come to Christ in one of these provinces where the gospel has come, and the husband is not. So what should they do? Should they leave this unbeliever or should they stay in the marriage? And Peter is exhorting and encouraging these wives to stay in the marriage and to display Christ by their conduct, by living out the gospel in, in, in a practical, in front of their husband sort of way, so that the husband might see the gospel that the wives confess and believe embodied and personified through their lives. And he's not saying that wives shouldn't say anything or not explain the gospel to their unbelieving husbands, but he's saying that by their, by their adherence to the word of truth, that God will use a woman's disposition of submission to her husband as a way of reflecting the gospel that she believes, and in God's kind providence, he can and does use that submission to soften the heart of a husband so that he would trust in Christ. Now, let's, let's think about this word submission because I think that um, that becomes oftentimes in our culture a point of contention. I want you to see the word submission, especially if you are a woman here today and that word causes like the hair on the back of your neck to rise up. I want you to see submission as a reflection of the most beautiful relationship that exists, which is the Trinity. So let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Um, I think it's verse 3. 
Um, put it up there on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I'm not sure if we got it or not, but I'll read it to you. This is Paul. Yeah, there it is. This is Paul explaining um, the relationship between husbands and wives to the, another church in Corinth. And there's a, a controversy going on there about whether or not wives should pray publicly and wear head coverings. And that's an extended argument. By the way, if you're interested in that, we looked at that when we went through 1 Corinthians several years ago. But I want you to, I want you to zero in on this logic and this comparison that Paul makes about our submission in relationship. He says, but I want you to understand, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ. So Christ is the head and men are submitting to Christ as our head. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So notice the, the flow of Paul's logic there. He is comparing a wife submitting to the headship or the leadership of her husband just as God the Son submits to the headship or the leadership of God the Father. So, so do you see the parallel? Do you see the comparison that Paul is making? He's saying that when a woman submits to the godly ordained authority of her husband, it is a it's an earthly shadow of an eternal reality of Jesus' submission to his Father, so it's it's an echo of the most beautiful relationship in the world, which is the Father and the Son within the Trinity. So, so as we resist to broken explanations and examples of what submission is in our culture, we need to realize that what the Bible is pointing to is not this hierarchical dominionism, but it's pointing towards this beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son. So, what does it mean for a wife to be subject to or to submit to her husband? I don't think I can do any better in just my explanation than to read from you a rather lengthy, but I think very helpful quote from a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's a thick book. We sell it in the Resource Center. It looks intimidating. It's a collection of articles and chapters written by a bunch of different pastors and theologians and leaders in the church today that is an excellent and very helpful resource. I commend it to you. It answers virtually every question that you, we may have about what the Bible says about the relationship between men and women, husband and wife, and how the roles of genders should complement one another. And this particular um, article is by a, a co-article by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And this is what they say about what submission means biblically. I'll read it and it'll be on the screen. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Listen to this. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. She submits out of reverence for Christ. We read that in Ephesians 5.21. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of her husband. She should never follow her husband into sin. Nevertheless, even when she may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, as we've read here in 1 Peter 3, 1, where Peter is clearly exhorting them not to give in to her husband's unbelief. So even when that's the case, and she's resisting her husband's sinful will, she can still have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and to lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. Friends, I think that's an excellent 
excellent explanation of the spirit of what submission means. And if you're, if you're um, racing to scribble that down, we'll put that on the internet when we post the sermon and have these notes with, with it. That there, is this, there is this posture that God has given us as men and women where men are to humbly lead, and we'll get to that in a moment, to lay down their lives as humble, Christ-like, protecting leaders, and that a woman is to submit, to come alongside and posture herself in helpfulness towards her husband, and even when he is unbelieving, or if he's a believer and he's sinning and he's abdicating his responsibility as the leader, there is a posture away that doesn't nag and overbear and usurp what should be his authority, but that comes along in a way to point towards this beautiful relationship that ultimately marriage should display. And so Peter here is commending these wives to live in this way, even with unbelieving husbands. And let me just say that if you find yourself in a marriage where your husband is not believing, know that this church and these pastors, sister, are wanting and willing to come around you and love you and encourage you and to help equip you and to pray for you and to rally around you as you fight that good fight of faith to commend the gospel to your husband. Know that this is a place for you to receive encouragement and support and nurture. Over three, let's keep going. Well, if that wasn't controversial enough, now let's talk about hair and jewelry. Awesome. So do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now breathe, sisters. I don't think this means that women cannot braid their hair or wear jewelry. Exhale, exhale. Inhale a couple times, exhale, all right? Because if that were the case, let's read verse 3 slowly and carefully. He says, do not let your adorning be external by the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you're wearing. So if he is outlawing braided hair and jewelry, he would also be outlawing clothes, which would lead us into a whole other set of issues. <laughs> so that's not what Peter, Peter is not saying, don't braid your hair or wear jewelry or wear clothes. What he's saying is, is that your adornment, the thing that you are projecting, the loudest note about you should not be your appearance. That shouldn't be the thing that drives your heart and your mind and your decisions every morning that you, that you wake up. This does not mean, I don't think, that a woman cannot look nice or put effort into her appearance. But I do think it means that there is a there is an ocean of difference between dressing to be noticed and dressing in a classy and respectable way. There is an ocean of difference between dressing to be noticed and dressing in a classy and respectable way. There is a beauty to modesty. And by the way, men, Women that are all confused in this area and that are getting this all wrong, by the way, they're just reacting to the first sin in the situation, which is men and their broken view of what femininity and beauty is. And so men, I mean, this is a, a systemic huge problem, but men, the reason things are like this, the reason why we have magazine covers with, with, with little girls that, that, that look like they haven't eaten in three weeks that are dressed like 
women of the night and this is why young teenage singers get promoted and and publicized and personified as the epitome of beauty and, and this is why young women are ravaged with insecurities about their body type because of the brokenness of men and how how selfish and shallow the culture of manhood is and Peter is saying here that women the loudest note about you should should not be whether or not you have all the the designer clothes or whether when you take that picture you're positioned in just the right way to like make it the most complimentary for your figure or that you know you you always look exactly like you know you're you're going out but that the loudest note about you is that there is this god-fearing woman who whose spirit is beautiful and gentle and who is trusting in and putting her hope in god and not in her appearance so, so women, I think this is the, the point of this verse, is that women should put their hope in God and not their appearance or what the culture of men around them thinks of their appearance. And dads, you have a, a particular role in your household to create a culture where your daughters grow up not thinking that their value is based on how they look in that picture or in those jeans, or in that bathing suit. He continues, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. In verse 6, then he uses, he goes back to this Old Testament example of Sarah and Abraham. And he says in verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So this example of Sarah, I think, is just, is just really, really important. And I, I want us to see this. That, so Peter is saying that this is an Old Testament example of what I'm talking about. This, this, this woman, Sarah, in the Old Testament, who respected her husband even though he failed her over and over and over again. So it says there in verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, notice that lowercase l, Lord. It's just a title of respect, like, like my master, Lord. So let's, let's go back and read where she calls him Lord in Genesis 18. This is so, so revealing. So what's happening here is God has promised Abraham, that he would, through him, he would be the father of God's people through faith, that he would, through him, would, God would multiply the earth with his people to a degree that there would be more of Abraham's descendants than there are stars in the sky. And even though Abraham and Sarah were well past 90 in their, in their elderly years, God says that your barren wife, Sarah, is going to bear for you a son, and through this son, I will bless the nations and populate the earth with my people who trust in me. And so Genesis 18, starting in verse 9, it says this, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? This is that chapter there where it's talking about and these three men showing up and then the whole issue with Sodom and Gomorrah happens where they try and take these three men and, 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 and do great harm to them and, and, and much um, unrighteousness and then God wipes out this whole city. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. This is these three angelic men showing up to Abraham. And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That means in modern day English that she was a little too old to have a baby. All right, she was old. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? In other words, she's overhearing the conversation between these angels and Abraham, laughing 
in sort of disbelief. <laughs> Can you imagine her doing her thing? <laughs> yeah, right, is basically the sentiment of this sentiment, of this sentence. Yeah, right, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? But listen, th- this, is, this is Peter interpreting this Old Testament text like the best Old Testament scholars are the New Testament writers, right? And so this is what Peter thinks there. That even though in that moment, Sarah didn't have a whole lot of hope in God's word, she still didn't run her husband down. I mean, I, can you imagine the other, ha, me have a baby? And this tired old mule that I got to drag around, Abraham, this bum. And oh, by the way, you know what Abraham had did to her in Genesis chapter 12? Right after God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and bless the whole world through you. That would be a sort of confidence-inducing event, don't you think? When God speaks to you and says, you're my man. Well, in the same chapter, Abraham completely wimps out when he approaches a foreign king and lies about Sarah being his wife because he was afraid that this king would take his wife and kill him if she knew that he was, she was his wife. And so he says, oh, I don't know, who she is. she's my sister, you can have her. Can we just say not exactly the most chivalrous example of manhood in the Bible? When you're like offering up your wife as your sister to a guy who you think is going to kill you for her. I don't know. I mean, yeah, but I mean, we look alike. I mean, we both got brown eyes. Here, take her. And so this is still fresh. I mean, I think that Sarah probably had this somewhere in the back of her mind. And yet, Sarah, if anybody who had a right to drag her husband down, he sold her out not once, but he does it twice in in Genesis chapter 20. And then there's this preposterous idea how I'm going to have a baby in 90. And yet, even as she is sort of scoffing at the possibility of this, she still has this posture of respect towards Abraham and calls him not broken down knucklehead, but she calls him Lord. Even in her sarcasm. And then we see what God does in Sarah's heart. And we read about Sarah in the New Testament. Where Sarah obviously came to a place of trust. As she postured herself. In submission even to a weak and feeble man. But it says later on of Sarah in Hebrews 11.11. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. So do you see what God did for Sarah as she postured herself towards Abraham? God gave her faith not in her husband but in God. So women should put their hope in God, not in their husbands. Even if you have a great husband, or you have a sorry husband, or you have no husband, and you're hoping for a husband, ladies, know that this example of Sarah is pointing us beyond your earthly husband to your God, who is the only one who is worthy of your hope. And this hope in God leads to fearlessness. It doesn't lead to a me- like a, a weak, submitted woman who's, you know, just kind of in the back doing chores and is only, only speaks when spoken to and is only there for food and children and taking care of them. No, this type of hope in God, this type of strength to submit to a husband that is even less than ideal leads to an unbelievable example of fierce feminine strength. Because what does it say there at the end of verse 6? It says that if you do good and do not fear, like Sarah, anything that is frightening. So an unknown future. Whatever may come in your life, as, as women, as you are like Sarah, putting your hope in God and not in your husband, it leads to a fierce, feminine fearlessness. It reminds me of that 
verse in Proverbs 31, verse 25, it says this. It says of the, this beautiful biblical woman, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Right? So there's this picture of biblical feminine strength that when that woman has the strength to posture herself towards her husband in a way, friends, that is not a sign of weakness. That is a sign of amazing strength. And she's the type of woman, like Sarah, like this Proverbs 31 woman, that when the world around her seems to be crumbling, she laughs. Ha! What do you got? Ha! Tomorrow's uncertain? Ha! So what? My hope is in God, not in the situation. Ha! That's a strong biblical woman. That's biblical submission. A woman who's so strong and whose hope is not in these 80 or 90 years, but in God who alone can satisfy, that she can laugh in the presence and in the face of an unknown future. Ha! I love that. Women that stand at the gate with a husband who's not optimal, with a child that may be rebellious, with a heart that is weak, and she stands at the gate of a world that seems to be falling around, around her and she laughs. Not because she's flippant, but because she trusts in God and not in a man. Ha! Makes me think of Romans 8, 31. If God is for you, woman, who can be against you? Let's keep going. Verse 7, just one for men. And do not think <laughs> that God has a lot of things to say to women and just one little thing to say to men. No, because there's a whole Bible full of admonitions for men to be Christ-like men. Spend some time this afternoon reading Ephesians 5, which maybe we'll get to in just a second as we conclude and it is all pointed at men. Now, the context of what's going on here in 1 Peter is Peter is writing to encourage Christians who are subject to a, uh, a pagan government. And then he's writing to encourage Christians who are subject to unbelieving bosses and masters. And then he's writing to women who are subject to unbelieving husbands. So he's taking more time on women out of a pastoral care because that is the situation that these women needed. So, his, so the extended verses on women is not that women, you got more things you need to work on. Don't read First Peter in a bubble, in a little vacuum. The context is, is Peter's pastoral heart caring for these women. And here's what he says to husbands on verse 7. And we could, I mean, we could do a sermon series on just verse 7 because there's so much embedded in this. It's like it's like just a, a tightly knit, just, just all sorts of stuff in there for men. But I don't, I don't have time for that. Let's go. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Guys, do you know how hard it is to be a woman? I mean, do you realize what strength it takes? No, just, I'm not being silly here. I, it is hard to be a woman. They live in a broken world that lies to them all day long about who they are. And I know that there are some women probably in this room who could absolutely whip some dudes, but for the most part, women physically, I see you over there, sister, I know, but for the most part, women have grown up physically dependent on protection. And then women navigate through life in a broken world that lies to them about what beauty is. And then they are saddled like with the responsibility for relationship, right? I mean... I know not every woman in this room necessarily stays at home with her children, but I think a lot of them do. Men, do you realize how difficult it is to stay in a house with two or three children all day? Like that will 
that will break you down and fold you up. And I mean, that will, that's hard. And do you realize that men, because we're just sometimes ignorant buffoons, just move on to the next thing? And that over and over in virtually every scenario in life, it is left to women to pull things together, to make sure things get done. Whatever it is, whether it's food or whatever, or taking care of children or caring or knitting back together broken relationships. Men, we have no idea the burden of responsibility that it is to be a woman. And Peter is saying here is live in a way that your mind is clued into that and not some stupid game or some stupid hobby or how many deer you killed or whatever. Not that those things are bad, but when you live your lives never clicking into how difficult it is to be a woman, to hold everything together, you are, you are losing the battle of what it means to be a man. And Peter is saying here, click in to your life, to your wife's world, and then show them honor. And lay down your life for them like Jesus laid down his life for you. And so let me get to Ephesians 5 and we'll end on this. Because friends, this is what this text is about. Ultimately, it's not about more peaceful earthly relationships or happy marriages or how we're supposed to work out difficulties. Yes, it's all those things, but ultimately... This text in 1 Peter is giving away to a greater reality, which is the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. So listen to these words from, first, from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Verse 32, listen to this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what is Peter saying there? And ultimately, I think, what is, I mean, what is Paul saying there in Ephesians? And ultimately, what is Peter saying in 1 Peter 3? That ultimately, our relationship, our marriages are pointing towards a greater relationship, not just earthly happiness between a man and a wife, but a man is to live with his wife in an understanding way and show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel because they're co-heirs, they're co-equal, the grace of life, so that they would display the beauty of the gospel. So that men, as we lay down our preferences, as we care for our wives in this way, we're not just doing that so that our lives will be better and we'll get what we want out of it, but because it becomes an echo of how Jesus laid down his life for his people. It becomes a picture of the gospel that we believe and preach. So what does the world need to see? That's what Peter is concerned with here in 1 Peter 3. The world needs to see something better than marriage and happy marriage here. The world needs to see something better than a Jerry Maguire scene where two people say, you complete me. The world needs to see something better than a woman who's adorned with fancy clothes and a beautiful external 
way about her. The world needs to see something better than a masculine man who seems to epitomize everything that our broken culture thinks is tough and hardy. The world needs to see a picture of the most important news, which is that God became man and laid down his life on the cross took the sin of his people on the cross and rose again in victory over sin and death and the grave and all of its consequences and loves his people because they are his bride and he lays down his life. He understands them. He gives him his righteousness. He gives him his love. He loves his people, his bride. And the world needs to see in our marriages imperfect people wrestling and straining towards displaying that. Now, friends, we'll all fail in that. So women will fail. You'll fail in submitting. Men, you'll fail in leading and showing honor. And even, I mean, even as I've been saying some of these things, I'll just a flash a scene from my own life a thing that maybe I've said to my wife or not said to my wife or done will just flash even as I'm expounding some truth. And there's part of me that just goes, oh. So friends, we are all in some measure failing in this. Do you see what Peter is pointing us towards? He's pointing us towards the gospel. So women, hope in God not your appearance, not your husband's, not in the prospect of marriage. Men, lay down your life for your wife, not so you'll get some temporal pleasure, but that so you will point towards the only piece of news that matters, which is that Jesus died for his bride, the church, and that all who trust in Christ and not in themselves live in beautiful relationship and marriage with him forever and ever. That's what this text is about. That's what marriage is about. That's what everything is about. Looking to Jesus, who alone can satisfy. And if you have never done that, you need to do that now. It's not just a pathway to a better life. It's the pathway to life. And to not trust in Christ is to be separated from him forever in eternal punishment and anguish. Friends, I plead with you to to consider Jesus, to look to him. I'm not pretending that just one sermon will answer all of your objections. Oftentimes, people come to Christ through a thousand little decisions. And so if you need to talk further about this, maybe around the lunch table, you can find one of the pastors or a person that you know to be a Christian and talk to them. Ask them what it means to trust in Christ, what it means to be a Christian. We'd be glad to do that. There's nothing more important than explaining that to you and helping you along that way to Jesus. For the rest of us, don't just... I pray that we would not just let this be a, another sermon out of Peter. I remember that day when Brad talked about what a bum Abraham is and told me I shouldn't hunt. No. Don't miss the point. Like, don't trivialize everything. Let's, pull, let's let this again push us towards Jesus. And may every area of our lives, our marriages, our singleness, our recovery from broken marriages push us towards commending and displaying the gospel that we confess. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, Father, for putting hard texts like this in the Bible for using good and beautiful words like subject and submission. If they were to terminate on themselves and only apply to human relationships, then 
maybe there might be some legitimacy to our resistance of them. But ultimately they point not to a sort of less than existence, but they point to a greater existence, a greater relationship. They point to joy in Christ. They point to the Trinity. They point to what it means to truly be human. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us imperfect governments and imperfect bosses and imperfect spouses that we must submit to and serve because it humbles us. It tunes our heart away from ourselves. It shows us that this world is not all about us getting our notion of justice. But it points us to you and hope and future in you. And that life is not these 80 or 90 years. Life is Christ. So Lord, if there's a a struggling wife who's in a horribly difficult situation, God, would you come to her now and would you encourage her? Would you let her know that there's pastors and shepherds and big sisters and brothers that are wanting to come around her and give her wisdom and encouragement and prayer as she endures a difficult relationship, a difficult marriage. Lord, for husbands in this room who are prone to take these words and to just sort of feel beat up by them, God, would you not let them sort of wimp out and just sort of fall back on that default? But would you help them see what's going on in their home and their marriage as something so much bigger than just these 80 years? There's something so much more joyful and satisfying than hobbies and leisure and sex and pleasure and recreate. And there is hope and grace for husbands and wives who fail because that is the gospel. It is not according to our righteousness, but Jesus, that we are made right with you. So encourage us and help us as we think about these words, as we respond to these words, and as we believe these words. And Lord, if there's a friend in this room who's not yet believing or trusting in Christ, would you give them the courage to talk, to come and speak with one of the pastors or somebody that they know to be a Christian? And would you give them faith to trust in Jesus, either today or in the coming days? And Lord, I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name, for the display of your love and marriage, the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.